In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Ian Wickramasekra and Julia Shannon. Dr. Ian Wickramasekra is a Bern Buddhist practitioner and Associate Professor of Mindfulness-Based Transpersonal Counseling at Naropa University. Julia Shannon is completing a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling and a course in SOA Rigpa counseling, in which she is researching the intersection of hypnosis, Buddhist meditation, and mental health. In the first part of this interview, Dr. Ian discusses his current thinking on what the traditions of Dzogchen and Western hypnosis can learn from each other, challenges Herbert Benson's relaxation response theory of meditation, and questions dualistic frameworks in science and experimental psychology. Then Dr. Ian and Julia dialogue about the prevalence of mental illness and regressive coping in Buddhist meditators, the personality types of religious mystics, and Julia's own experience using hypnosis to cure her phone addiction. Dr. Ian and Julia also consider the implications of teaching advanced Buddhist meditation methods in a clinical setting including ethical issues and concerns about violating sacred Samaya vows, and they discuss their experiences of personal identity and professional life as biracial adults in America today. So without further ado, Dr. Ian Wickramasekra and Julia Shannon. Dr. Ian Wickramasekra and Julia Shannon, welcome to the podcast. Well, I'm so delighted to be talking with you both here today, and Julia is currently finishing a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling and also finishing a Buddhist Soa Rigpa, that's Tibetan medicine counseling course, and will soon be practicing psychotherapy in a clinical internship. And she's particularly interested in the ways in which hypnosis and therapy, particularly from her perspective of Buddhist therapy, can support each other. And she's writing a thesis about that. I'll let her explain more about that in depth later. And of course, in this episode, Dr. Rain, you've generously agreed to talk with Julia about her, her thesis and answer some of her, her questions. So thank you very much, Dr. Rain, and also thank you, Julia. So happy to be with you. Thank you. And first of all, I'm going to ask a couple of questions to you, Dr. Ian, just some introductory questions, and then I'll step back and the two of you will carry on with your dialogue. So, of course, this, uh, Dr. Ian, is, is right in your wheelhouse, uh, this sort of material we're, we're thinking about here. I'm thinking in particular of your papers, the Kalyana Mitra and the Client-Centered mm -hmm. Psychotherapist, that was 2004, mm -hmm. yeah. and Hypnotic-like Aspects of the Tibetan Tradition of Dzogchen Meditation, 2020. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. um, we've discussed those papers before, you and I, in, in many episodes um, here on the podcast, and I do strongly recommend anyone listening or watching to go back and check out those previous episodes with Dr. Ian. They're, they they have been uh, very fascinating, very popular episodes. Um, so if, if I might quote the latter, the hypnotic-like aspects of the traditional of the Tibetan tradition of Dzogchen meditation, I'll just quote a little bit from that. The tradition of hypnosis offers the yogis of Dzogchen an example of how they could benefit by opening up their methods and theories of mind to scientific inquiry which in fact many teachers of Dzogchen are already espousing today. The research tradition of hypnosis can offer Dzogchenpa's excellent empirical evidence for their assertion of the dreamlike nature of the self and reality, as well as empirical methods of investigating the phenomena of Dzogchen. For instance, Dzogchenpa's might be interested in researching whether the practice of Ngundro increases the mind-body potential of yogis in similar ways that research in hypnosis has shown that a number of practices can increase hypnotic ability. 
The yogis of Dzogchen can offer the clinical and experimental traditions of hypnosis entirely new hypnotic-like practices and theories of mind to research such as Trekcho and Togyal. The study of these practices might help expand the potential domain of hypnosis and our understanding of what Dzogchen asserts about the natural state of the mind. And there are some more examples here. For instance, we might wonder about how the yogi's visual experience of Tigle in the Togyal practice of sky gazing is similar to and or different from visual hypnotic hallucinations. How are the neurophenomenological correlates of yogis meditating on the natural state of the mind similar to people's experiences in hypnosis contacting the wisdom of their unconscious? Is the deep wisdom said to exist with the natural state and the unconscious mind actually less dualistic as the tradition of Dzogchen asserts? The yogis of Dzogchen also challenge us to become more phenomenologically based in our personal embodiment of hypnosis in a way that could inspire us to become better clinicians and researchers capable of embracing the new neurophenomenological paradigm that is emerging in consciousness studies. So I've read that uh, rather long quote from, from that um, article, and of course I will link the full paper in the show notes for those who uh, wish to read the whole thing, and I recommend that you do. So, uh, Dr. Rian, to establish some context, could you walk us through some of that material and also share with us your current thinking on the clinical possibilities in this meeting of hypnosis and Buddhist practices, such as those of the Dzogchen tradition. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, thank you for the wonderful uh, introduction, uh, Steve. And Julia, it's so nice to uh, be with you here. And I really look forward to hearing about uh, your work and have a nice uh, discussion. Uh, this is such a powerful potential area, I think, for allowing some of the limitations of the uh, Western practice of psychotherapy, uh, counseling, and related fields, I guess, psychiatry and neurology probably as well, um, to really get beyond some of the needless dualistic uh, uh, hangups you know, that we have this huge hangups in crisis in mental health. Uh, and this year in particular has really seen a number of like uh, gigantic paradigms in Western psychology and psychiatry and psychiatry in particular really falling apart like uh, the paradigm about how antidepressants work, which, you know, for those who do hypnosis research, uh, and, you know, even anyone who knows who Irving Kirsch is <laughs> has known for a long time that this, the neurospecificity of uh, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor theory of how depression is cured and the, indeed the, the whole hypothesis that uh, mainly depression has, reflects serotonin deficiencies is totally dismantled. <laughs> <laughs> this year. And that's only one of several dualistic uh, interpretations of uh, the challenges that we face in this life with depression and, you know, and the challenge to even just improve our performance in other areas like being, I don't know, better golfers and, and uh, better uh, at doing our work. So whether we're thinking about trying to help people with the suffering of this life or to improve their performance, the whole paradigm that we have in uh, Western psychology and counseling 
really suffers from this tremendous um, tendency to be completely dualistic in ways that it doesn't need to. And so um, when we really get into this area, I see this bright light of this non-dualistic uh, practices, you know, coming from uh, many different traditions of uh, indigenous uh, wisdom, but in particular, I really like to talk about Dzogchen uh, meditation. It's so good for helping one to realize the illusions of self that we <laughs> persecute ourselves with uh, all the time, you know, whether we want to, uh, you know, make that needlessly uh, materialistic and, you know, start to say, well, it must be this de faulty default mode network in my brain that needs to be adjusted or something. Um, or whether um, we want to like really believe in the illusion itself at, in such a level that we just say we're stuck. Uh, I've, for instance, I, I once had to quit smoking uh, and I told myself, uh, I've been smoking since I was 12. I, I must be a smoker and got real fixated on the continuity of this amazingly flexible self <laughs> and saying, no, I'm stuck. And yeah, even if you want, you can, you can do that. So uh, just off the bat, I wanted to say that uh, the interaction of these two traditions, in particular hypnosis and Dzogchen, uh, I think has tremendous benefits. And, you know, that quote, uh, so kind of you to read, Steve, I think really uh, focuses in on what what the possibilities are for each side. Uh, and I guess maybe starting with the clinical psychology side of it, uh, I really do feel uh, there is a real crisis in science in general. And uh, this is not just a psychology issue about the mechanic, uh, the materialistic viewpoint of science has been in question at the highest levels of physics for quite a while now. I mean, to such an extent where people are proposing experiments to see whether we're living in a simulation or not. <laughs> Which the funny thing is the uh, answer to that question is uh, by definition, yes. And no one experiences the world outside of their somatosensory cortex. No one experiences the world outside of the neural matrix. Anyways, the, the question is whether the experience of the somatosensory cortex and the experience of the matrix that we have is uh, also uh, simulated as well. Is it that we're experiencing a simulation within a simulation is the real the real question, because no one experiences their body directly. Only you have, you know, the sensations that travel to the, you know, neuro, the uh, neuromatrix area in the uh, parietal cortex. And that is, in fact, a simulation of the body. No one experiences reality directly. And so this is a real crisis in, under, in science in general about needlessly uh, making science only the province of a kind of materialistic dualism. And um, no doubt that um, 
non-dualistic philosophies do need to be integrated into all areas of science, even in physics. I mean, it's really uh, amazing. You can read in many different um, crises in that field now, and, and particularly around non-locality, you know, about how are we to understand and measure things when measuring them changes the state of the universe, you know, <laughs> in quantum mechanics. Um, but anyway, I'll keep this to psychology, but I did want to say that this actually is something that I feel belongs in all areas of science, not, not just psychology, but it must by its nature, because we're talking about people's subjective experiences in psychology, like depression is, is a subjective experience. You know, when you have it, you know, you really have to deal with it as it is. And if someone tells you that your depression is solely because you're running out of serotonin and you just need more, why that can kind of imprison you in a kind of view that in fact, there is nothing you can do about it. The other thing that really sucks about that is it also tends to make you blame yourself when in fact, maybe, <laughs> you are living in a kind of society that's exploiting you. <laughs> and then actually, uh, it turns out that a large number of people are taking drugs to increase their serotonin who are perhaps being exploited. And also that there may be, if the person is not being exploited, that the society itself is sick in a different way, not involving exploitation, uh, exploitation necessarily. Uh, but there can be all kinds of social and cultural uh, determinants that bring people to the experience of depression and suffering. And maybe, you know, if we were to really follow Dzogchen even further, that actually there is something inherently causes one to suffer as, as long as you believe in yourself. <laughs> this is a really funny way of saying that. Uh, and I do mean that paradoxically and playfully, but actually there is a kind of uh, existential level of suffering that we would understand in the Western way, we would call this existentialism by, by nature of existing. And you now there is a kind of suffering that people experience. And maybe that has absolutely nothing to do with serotonin uh, or if it does, that it's uh, you know something more of multiple factors contributing to different people's uh, mind-body interactions. So that yeah, you could existentially have a, a tendency to feel uh, anxiety over the fact that someday you're going to die, <laughs> and that. You don't know what's happening from the next moment to the next. And uh, some people like things about you and that feels good. And other people don't like many other things about you or you worry that they think negative things about you. And the next thing you know, this whole maintaining the self becomes uh, very difficult. I mean, there's just all manner of suffering that happens when one is born as a human being and fixates on who one thinks one is. 
And so one of the wonderful things that Dzogchen can really offer is a way of cutting through some of these fixations that cause these dualistic uh, interpretations of why one is suffering, when in fact it is the holding itself and uh, the being attached to who I think I am is definitely the thing that's bringing me <laughs> and wanting to be a certain way is definitely, no doubt, my biggest source of suffering. Uh, is it also true that there are other things going on that contribute? Of course, yes. Uh, definitely the kind of society I live in and definitely those things accumulate in ways that influence my body that will also bring me into a line and experience of suffering. You know, it's really very hard uh, not to be experiencing depression if you have no energy, you know, no energy and you're feeling like maybe in the Saloon practice that your central channel is blocked and uh, you cannot uh, experience any of this non-dual energy that really allows one to let things be as they are. And like, yeah, there are things about myself I don't like. And there are many things uh, that I cannot change about. It seems like I can't change about the world around me, whether it's simulation or not. Uh, but at the same time, it's okay. There is a way of letting things be as they are, you know, leave things as they are without being too fixated and working with them as they are. And so that, is, that philosophy of Dzogchen really cuts across many traditions of uh, clinical psychology. Even this phrase, like, leave it as it is. Like, uh, this phrase I first heard uh, actually in the tradition of hypnosis. I heard this from uh, hmm, probably was uh, Martin Warren, uh, who is one of the inventors of the Harvard group scale of hypnotic ability. And also I heard from Ernest Hilgard at Stanford. Uh, and every time he would be inducing hypnosis, he would say, just let happen uh, whatever happened. And just go with whatever is happening. And uh, then, Later on, I'm studying Dzogchen, and uh, I heard uh, many times our most senior teacher in the Bun tradition of Dzogchen, his name uh, is his, uh, Yangzen Rinpoche. And so Yangzen Rinpoche, I believe he's about 95 now. And anytime you go to ask him a question, you know, should, what should I do during my meditation? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I be more focused on this? If I have this kind of experience, what should I do? And it would just always say the same thing. Leave it as it is. It is enough. Leave it as it is. And so, but then the question is, well, how do I leave? What am I, and who, who am I who's leaving? as it is, <laughs> but uh, it's true, actually. Uh, it's the grasping and, and the focus on grasping. And part of that grasping is the dualism that we perceive, you know, uh, between the me and the not me, the self and the other, all these things. 
any rate, I got quite a bit philosophical here at the beginning to start, uh, but this is because actually I think dualism is an extremely limiting factor now for clinical psychology. Certainly it has been a crisis for psychiatry as I'm just sort of talking about psychiatry's problems with SSRIs. And it's not just that like people, we have pills that we don't know why they work. It's also that we're giving pills to people that don't work for them and even that make them worse because we have a theory that says they need it. So there are people that get medications because of theories about, dualistic theories about what underlies depression in particular, but also anxiety and even theories involving, you know, uh, various so-called extreme states or psychotic experiences. There are people who are being forced on those medications who actually get worse with them. And that is, uh, it is only if you believe in these theories in such a tight way that you would do such a thing to a person. And no doubt, um, those medications do help some people they don't help everyone. And then even in the, the, um, in the, uh, the pharmaceutical manufacturer's own research shows that some people get worse. And so this is a real crisis. And so the, one of the biggest things I think philosophically we can get out of an interaction between uh, Zogchen and hypnosis and clinical psychology or psychiatry for that matter uh, is to understand that we need to let loose some of our dualistic thinking about how the mind works. Uh, and I really enjoy this a lot, uh, this interaction. Even I did one study there where I, I, I picked an easy low-hanging fruit, uh, which was to look at the so-called uh, dualism of the autonomic nervous system, where it's divided between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. It was my great, uh, I guess, non-dualistic uh, uh, trickster-like nature that I uh, proposed to invalidate Herbert Benson's relaxation response theory. Because <laughs> I realized that, you know, his theory about meditation and uh, also uh, any relaxation oriented practice was that uh, we, we are able to experience relaxation because relaxation is hardwired as a parasympathetic response from the parasympathetic nervous system. And that if you wanted to really see a real relaxation response, you would see reduction in sympathetic nervous system, the so-called stress-based nervous system, you know, and then, then uh, you want to see the relaxation, then as the stress is going down, then the relaxation goes up in the parasympathetic nervous system. And there were measures of these things, like a pure measure of sympathetic nervous system would be like skin conductance from uh, amount you sweat, you know, from the galvanic skin response of your fingertips. And then a good measure, materialistic measure of uh, 
parasympathetic nervous system, really good one would be cardiac vagal tone. And uh, you should be able to show good vagal tone response to show you're increasing to be a good measure of your parasympathetic nervous system. And so for many years, people just let that go. But anybody who had ever done kundalini yoga knew right away that was fucked up because when you do kundalini yoga, you can be super relaxed and that really jacks your heart rate up. Uh, and uh, you're not feeling stressed, you feel good. But also anyone who'd ever made love should have realized that that was fucked up because in order to make love, you have to hit the brakes and the gas at the same time. If you don't have enough sympathetic engagement, you cannot engage in enough heart rate uh, increase and all these things are normal during orgasm. In fact, during orgasm, most people's uh, heart rate is approaching that similar to a little less than uh, having a heart attack. Uh, and yet nobody is saying that's so stressful they don't wanna make love. Well, unless they have you know, actually a sexual dysfunction and then they go to sex therapy and then I see them. <laughs> but it's not the, the stress response that's making it bad. Uh, actually, it's this dualism, this thought that the autonomic nervous system itself See that we keep doing that. We keep coming up with these opponent processes. Uh, and that, there's no doubt that uh, not only is this bad for our understanding of the neuroscience of the body, but it's just bad in general that really we end up with these needless debates in science uh, all the time between people trying to specify things in dualistic terms, when in fact, uh, there's really a lot of these things have a lot more fuzziness to them than it really needs to be. Like we should not be calling the parasympathetic nervous system, the relaxation-based nervous system. We should not be calling the uh, stress-based nervous system, the sympathetic system, because yeah, while there is a tendency in those directions, they're, they're, they're not essentially either one of those things because it's very possible to have very stressful experiences uh, when you know, show very little sympathetic activation. A uh, good example of that would be like this kind of, um, I guess maybe like a catatonic uh, psychotic state would be something like that. Very low activation. And all the people I know that have been in catatonic states have said they are really frightening and horrible. Uh, also people having um, uh, sleep paralysis could look very peaceful psychophysiologically. They'll have very low heart rate elevations and things, at least at the beginning stages of it. Uh, and their muscle, the muscle tone of sleep paralysis is none. Like they have no EMG whatsoever. They look like their body is the most relaxed ever. At any rate, uh, I'm just trying to give some examples of uh, this crazy dualism and how it uh, there are. I think fundamental misunderstandings about how the body works all together in relationship to the, even our emotions. You know, it's very strange. Like people think that if uh, if you were to say that you were happy, then that would mean that you couldn't be angry at the same time. I don't think that's true. 
it reminds me of a classic uh, Ren and Stippy episode where <laughs> I remember like uh, Stippy Ren says, I'm happy being angry. <laughs> there are times when you can't be angry and happy at the same time. It's very interesting. I, I think that the more that we can get into really uh, looking at the potentiality that uh, human beings have through abandoning some of these dualistic ideas about uh, um, the dualism of different mental processes. For instance, the you know, relaxation versus stress-based nervous systems. I think we'll start to really see a lot of the shades of gray in between. And in, and in particular, there is between that one is sexual experiences, right? Where there's high uh, activation of both. And uh, everyone experiences, uh, at least I hope everyone gets a chance to experience such things and such bliss and intimacy with oneself and others. Uh, it's really very um, important, I think, that, that when people begin really to look at how the mind really is, and what really brings a cessation of suffering, it is through letting things be as they are and not reifying them into categories or experiences of calling uh, oneself by one name or calling any one thing by one name and really uh, allowing the context, the total context of everything that's happening really come into the picture rather than essentializing. Which uh, I think philosophically is one of these things. We, we even need our epistemology to change. Uh, so I guess that's going a little further than I did in, in the past on this. I, I happen to be uh, writing about this right now. And I think actually Dzogchen does offer a different kind of uh, epistemology that also includes um, uh, what is he? What is the philosophy that the truth can be beautiful? I always forget the name of that philosophy. Uh, aestheticism. Yeah, we could also include aestheticism in particular. Uh, philosophically, I think, no doubt. Uh, how is it that we aren't including aestheticism in a science where we're trying to help people reach beautiful experiences? And yet, if you look at uh, the writings in Dzogchen, they're always talking about beauty. And even uh, the even have like iconography about it, about rainbows, things like that. Like actually, the truth is also beautiful and loving. There is an inseparability between truth of something and love. And so all of this, I think, really uh, draws into question why we have taken aestheticism out of science. I would like to, I would like to take the hard version of materialism out of science and bring some aestheticism. Um, any anyway, rate, so that's that's one very abstract area. I'm sorry I started with that one, <laughs> but it's one I've been thinking quite a lot about because it's not just for psychology. I think it's actually for all the sciences. I think we need some aestheticism.
that brings some morality to science, actually. Um, but uh, yeah, more specifically, uh, no doubt, uh, Zogchen has all of these practices that uh, build upon many of the practices we've already studied, such as in particular mindfulness meditation. And I would say even now, there's been you know more than a decade or two of research on compassion-based practices like Tonglen. But all of those practices, you know, are fairly um, hmm, uh, appropriate for introductory level folks to practice, for novices to practice. There are actually a number of practices also for novices that have hardly ever been studied, like uh, Salum, that I was just uh, practicing <laughs> before I got here. Uh, that practice is actually meant to make mindfulness work better. In my tradition, uh, salum means uh, the energy and the channels. And so you do different breathing practices that are meant to activate different uh, energy centers in your body. And in particular, uh, in my tradition in the bun, uh, they teach this when you're first learning meditation so that when you go down to sit you're not sitting there with the with the, as much anxious energy like this actually gives a way of working with the body to change the mind rather than always we want to you know in psychology we will teach you to change your mind mostly by changing your thought and teaching you how to change your thought it's very rare that actually we spend some time talking about how to change the mind by changing the body, other than saying you should exercise and practice stress management. But there's very little thought about the interaction of mind and body in that. And so there are a whole number of practices for changing the mind using the body or the energy really more, uh, the experience of energy that like Salung would be in there in Trokur, you know, Tibetan yoga. Uh, then also there are, as we discussed in other times, uh, ways of actually experiencing uh, the non-duality itself of uh, our perception through using uh, Trekcho and then later Togo to sort of uh, experience uh, non-dual perceptions of the illusory nature of reality itself. Thinks that, you know, frankly, uh, we've been blowing uh, the scientific world away for many years in the hypnosis world by showing that when people actually have hypnotic hallucinations, they have the same correlates as if they were looking at the real stimulus. You know, there's a, quite a number of those experiments. Steve Coslin is the first that I'm aware of to show that hypnotic hallucinations in terms of uh, positron emission tomography, though later people uh, repeated with fMRI, I, you can't tell the difference between whether someone is uh, visualizing something with a hypnotic hallucination or whether they're directly looking at an image. Uh, there is no difference, uh, at least in terms of what we can measure 
maybe perhaps the better measures will come up with distinctions as possible, of course. Um, but at any rate, uh, so with this tradition, uh, really we'll have a way of really investigating, you know, uh, non-dualistic experiences directly with a real paradigm with a togal and one which uh, we could even say has a embodied tradition how to teach such a thing. And that's another thing that I think Dzogchen really has to offer um, the hypnosis world. And that is too often, uh, I met people who were like experts in hypnosis and they really are. So I'm not meaning to question that. But then I would say to them, I was like, oh, you know, uh, you know, what, do you, what is your experience of hypnosis like? And they're like, oh, I've never been hypnotized. Remember I told Ted Barber that one time. I was like, wow, you know, because I saw him giving a lecture and it looked like he was deep in trance. And uh, I was like, hey, Ted, man, you were really on fire, man. You were deep in your hypnosis there. And he's like, what are, what are you talking about, Ian? I've never been, ever. You know, and then even my dad started to make fun of him a little bit. <laughs> we were like, you closed your eyes the whole time. You were either preaching from a high hypnotic trance. No doubt you were in your own way. You know? uh, then I was trying to relate it to my uh, empathic theory of hypnosis. And yeah, you were so entranced with your own viewpoint that you were like hypnotized, you know, hypnotic like state, so to speak. Uh, and actually, that often is what makes for a good speaker, someone who is so immersed in their own view that actually they can explicate it uh, at a very deep level. And then if they're aware of their audience, it's, it's so much better. <laughs> really aware of who they're speaking to and using the words that, yeah, sure, they're able to speak from their own place, but actually make contact with other people, too. At any rate, uh, I just find it atrocious that so many people in the hypnosis world do not devote themselves to hypnotic practice other than on other people. <laughs> and I think this is insane. I think uh, the way we should be teaching hypnosis is much some more similar to the way the Zogchenpas teach you. You must learn by practicing yourself before you ever become a teacher of another person. And I think there are so many people I know that I think that not only do would they do better clinical work, but I think we would have less debates in the hypnotic world about things that don't really matter that much uh, in the grand scheme of things. Um, if people would actually just practice on a daily basis and that it should be, from my viewpoint, uh, a requirement of becoming a real expert in hypnosis is that you're practicing every day and not just on others. <laughs> you have to go along for the ride with your clients at the bare minimum, but you should be practicing all by yourself as well or doing something to work with that part of us that really allows these things to happen. Uh, whether we think of that in a materialistic term of our default world network or just experientially, we're doing something to work with our ability to transform our mind-body relationship. 
So maybe that's enough to be said on that side uh, about what they offer us. I think simply what we offer them is a lot of validation of their ideas because, you know, because we have been so dualistic, we actually have found ways to give uh, correlates of neurological experiences. And so sometimes we actually have been able to do things that actually suggest that enlightenment exists materialistically. Uh, one is uh, we showed that um, mind wandering in meditation or the sort of tendency to talk to oneself can be indexed by different things, but in particular activity of the default mode network. And so if you wanted to see someone who you know, really can be fully in the here and now during uh, any number of meditation related practices, whether they're thought of as Dzogchen or not, but in particular, maybe we'll say Trekcho here, uh, just being uh, in a state of open awareness. You can, you can see people who are good at this practice, they do actually have less default mode network uh, activity going on, which suggests that they're talking to themselves less. They're less self-aware in terms of generating and verbally clinging to oneself. Uh, also, um, this re is related to related mystical and hypnotic-like experiences like in ayahuasca, where the uh, default mode network seems to dissolve altogether. People will experience uh, something that you might call an ego death. Um, uh, at any rate, um, so that is definitely something that we can offer them, that actually some of these research paradigms in hypnosis could be used to research even the most precious of these teachings. And especially since that has started to happen, that seems to be what's happening. And so I think that's wonderful and may save this precious indigenous wisdom traditions that I think really could help us, not just in terms of, uh, uh, thinking about social justice issues, but it could really help us with this huge problem, philosophical problem that I really went into in quite detail, and I'm sorry, about the philosophical underpinning of science itself needing to be less materialistic and include more uh, aestheticism. I think we really need a lot more aestheticism, in, at least in psychology and psychiatry. Uh, maybe physicists will tell me there's no use for asceticism there, but I can say it has practical value in psychiatry because we care about the beautiful in psychiatry and psychology. Uh, we are trying to reach the beautiful. Why, why does our scientific method not include asceticism? And it really doesn't make much sense anymore to me. Uh, it will make us more sensitive to the context in which beings live. Do people live in a beautiful way? Are you living in a society that does not allow inner human beauty to come out? Then maybe we should change. You know, maybe there are ways to do that. Uh, and Dzogchen does offer that, actually. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, I'm actually happened to be sitting in a place where there was a Tibetan Rinpoche who proclaimed that such a thing was possible, that we could 
actually draw forth not only from individually uh, or as a lineage of people practicing Dzogchen, but actually the principles of Dzogchen and different uh, esoteric Buddhist ideas could be <laughs> utilized in a kind of government, you know, and those were the Shambhala teachings uh, that Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche uh, proclaimed. Um, so possibly, possibly that could also come into play. That could be something we could contribute more to uh, an understanding of how human beings could live in beauty, but at least at an individual. I mean, I have not studied those teachings in any depth, so I, I won't vouch, but I, I love uh, very much that teacher. Um, but I will say that individually, no doubt, uh, and there's no doubt that people can come to really uh, get beyond their grasping. And uh, that seems to be the origin of so many uh, categories of our suffering come from clinging to the self or clinging to the world. So I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing um, that benefit of Dzogchen be validated by the very same methods that we use are similar methods to validate hypnotic techniques. Why not also do that here? We have all kinds of scales that we've invented that are even the concept that people have of, uh, for instance, um, what makes for a good student in Dzogchen, there are all kinds of writings about the, the classifications of good students. Well, the hypnosis research would seem to suggest that being high hypnotizable is one of them. <laughs> For one thing, it would be very hard to do any Dzogchen practices if you're a low hypnotizable. It will be very difficult indeed. Um, all right, so those are ways I think that we can help validate uh, ideas and hopefully draw more attention to uh, these indigenous traditions that really uh, can offer so much to us. There, I know I went on for quite a bit there, so I'll just kind of pause here. Uh, but I think that's kind of uh, going in the, that area of the quote, uh, but also uh, with a lot more emphasis on something which I'm actually quite serious about, which is changing uh, epistemology. I think our epistemology in, in psychology and psychiatry is killing people. And I really want to see that change. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Ian. That's very thought-provoking indeed. I think you've laid an excellent, uh, given us an excellent platform for Julia's investigations, uh, which I I know about and you're about to find out about. So Julia, could you, um, may I hand it over to you? Uh, could you say a little bit about who you are, what you're doing, which questions you're investigating, um, and how it is that you came to be interested in those questions? I know that's an interesting story too. And so I'll hand it now over to the to the two of you to dialogue on your material, Julia. Great. Thank you so much, Steve. And thank you, Dr. Ian, for your comments. Um, I really enjoyed kind of hearing a little bit more about you know, your relationship with that article, um, especially your ideas about beauty and bringing that more into kind of our psychological thinking into the therapeutic space. 
Um, so to share kind of how I got to the place of my interest in hypnosis, um, I, as Steve mentioned, I'm studying Soa Rigpa, the traditional Tibetan medicine and science of healing um, with Dr. Nita Chenaksang through the Soa Rigpa Institute, along with Dr. Caroline Van Dam, who kind of teaches us the Western psychological tradition. So we are integrating an exploration of both sides of this um, psychology of the mind and the relationship between the mind and the body. Uh, so as part of that process, um, I've been looking into uh, the experience of hypnosis. Uh, I've received hypnosis myself, and I wanted to share a little bit about what that experience was like, um, because I did really relate it to experiences that I've had um, studying Vajrayana Buddhism, you know, at the beginner level and some experiences that I've had with uh, meditative absorption. So, you know, another aspect of this is also that I am a biracial person of uh, European and Asian descent. <laughs> and so I think oh. I do have a deep, yeah, a deep seated interest, you know, in at a personal level, you know, finding moments of connection, moments where there are uh, similarities and thinking and experience on both sides of the tradition and thinking about how there's complementary aspects for both traditions, right? That there can be aspects of Eastern thinking and medicine that are complementary to the Western practices, and that there's also Western practices that may be complementary, harmonious, and uh, symmetrical in some ways with uh, practices on the, you know, on the Eastern side. Um, so with that in mind, um, I did, you know, as a, as a, you know, as a research subject, my case study is myself. So I went into um, an experience of hypnotherapy in August, uh, where I tried to kind of tackle the issue of phone addiction in my own life. And I felt like that was kind of the perfect storm because there are so many factors going into the experience of attachment to the phone, you know, the dopamine, the, the dopamine injection that you're getting in your brain, and there's kind of physical stimuli, there's visual stimuli, and then there's kind of the influence that you were describing, Dr. Ian, of our social cultural environment, and how there are so many forces that are, uh, you know, inducing grasping, right, you know, for profit, for, 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 for capitalism, for consumption, um, to ease kind of feelings of pain and discomfort and emptiness that people are experiencing kind of living in our modern industrialized world. Um, so I took this problem into hypnotherapy, thinking that it was also a very tough problem that would have clear results, um, because I wanted something that, you know, there would also be a, dem a kind of a, some kind of evidence that came out of this process for me. So I did, I went to two sessions with a hypnotherapist who was also a licensed psychotherapist. And so in the first session, we discussed his phone addiction. In the second session, we actually did hypnotherapy together. And I guess I would say that I went into the experience thinking that it would be more of an altered state of consciousness. That was kind of my intuitive feeling about what it might be like. You know, I have experienced some other forms of altered states of consciousness, and I thought it could be like that, or that it could be more similar to kind of the hypnagogic state between dream and sleep. And I was surprised because when I went through the experience, um, it was really much more like meditative absorption. And I felt that it was more connected to experiences I had had, you know, doing uh, especially visualization based meditative practices, um, you know, through through our work and our studies um, at the Suodigpa Institute. And I will say that this hypnothera hypnotherapy was tremendously effective. Um, I went to one session of hypnotherapy where I kind of was regressed. It was kind of toggling between um, visualizing a feeling of safety connected to specific memory and then kind of toggling to kind of an age regression where I was experiencing, you know, some negative emotions, you know, that I that I think I was avoiding with with part of my addictive phone use, right? So kind of encountering, visualizing, and fighting against kind of this mass of feelings, you know, that I think I've been avoiding through kind of touching and, and using my phone in this addictive way. So after that process happened, I had kind of a one-week lag time where I think my 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 
conscious mind was not very fixated on the problem, but my organic intelligence, it's kind of below the level of executive cognition was kind of working on this problem. And after a week lag time, I pretty much just stopped using my phone compulsively, completely. And the craving was extinguished for the most part. And I would say that I have maintained that, you know, with some lapses, <laughs> not with perfect discipline, but, you know, I've maintained this feeling for the, for most of the last four months. So it was extremely successful. Right. And it was something I think that was a powerful experience. It did affect my understanding of the self um, and kind of the malleability of the self. And also kind of what you were describing, I think, which is that there is a more perfect, more, more sophisticated, more intelligent, wisdom in the mind body that is below the executive level of cognition. And I know that you've pointed in the past, Dr. Ian, to kind of Milton Erickson and his, um, you know, his comments about how the, the, the storehouse that we have, which is related also to Buddhist concepts of the storehouse of memory, that that can actually be a healing, a healing factor. And, you know, I think also with our teacher, Dr. Nita Chenak Song, you know, and his teachings about how the body's intelligence is, you know, beautiful, well-organized, organic, you know, and, and always with us, part of the challenge that we're experiencing, I think, is to connect with that, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, connecting with it. <laughs> and there are so many layers that are separating us from that organic intelligence. So I think the reason this experience of hypnosis was so powerful, and I think interesting and, and also moving is because I feel that it was a bridge, right, a bridge to that part of myself, and that there was a capacity for problem solving that was unleashed, even in one session that drastically affected my daily experience. So I guess I'm interested, you know, with that in mind, kind of hearing a little bit more um, in terms of your experience clinically, practicing hypnosis, maybe even experiencing hypnosis for yourself, how you see kind of the hypnotic state and the meditative state, you know, and how the meditative state might differ, especially from maybe self-hypnosis, you know, what are kind of like the aspects of the meditative state and the hypnotic state um, that, that are, that, that, that have moments of resonance without, as you said, conflating the two traditions, uh, right? Because I'm also wary as you are, I think, of over conflating these two ideas. And so I appreciate that you're kind of calling it hypnotic-like as opposed to, you know, equivalent hypnotic. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard it say crazy dualism again, right? Either something is the same or it's different, you know, there's right. not, they're blended in some way. And the individual variance in hypnotic responsiveness and meditative responsiveness is also wide. Some people, when they meditate, Believe it or not, some people, when I teach them to meditate and I start saying, you know, like, oh, and if you find that your mind is wandering, just go back to your breathing. And, I, you know, first time you teach someone to meditate is always this thing. And uh, so I'm like, oh, I'll say it a few times. And I've literally had people say, you know, the only time my mind is wandering is when you keep talking. <laughs> And I was like, you mean you're just focusing on your breathing and that's it? That's all you have? And it's like, yeah, that's all I have. And then meanwhile, there's like 95% others who don't have uh, advanced dissociation already. <laughs> I haven't really hacked their interior cingulate yet. Uh, you know, where they need some encouragement like that. So, uh, you know, in answering your question, first I want to point out that this dualism infects this debate itself and actually causes debate and causes people to split politically. Because like there are some people like, oh, we don't want to be associated with the dirty hypnosis. Oh, 
get those people away, you know, the Svengalis or something, you know. Uh, I mean, I do like his wardrobe, but I, you know, <laughs> it's just a lot, so forget that. But uh, it looks good in the film. Uh, but uh, no, this is ridiculous. Like some people think uh, meditation, good, hypnosis, bad. And some people are literally the opposite. I once almost got fired uh, for, I won't say what university, but a university medical school almost fired me because they didn't want me teaching meditation. And I was like, what? You don't want me to teach meditation? I was like, yeah, you're a Buddhist. Uh, you're, you're proselytizing to them. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm not teaching John Kevin Even He came and spoke at this university. What are you talking about? And they're like, no, you cannot teach it because you're a Buddhist. Someone else could do it. But because you're a Buddhist, then it will slip out. And they're like, all right, well, then I'll just teach people how to meditate on. No, I'm not meditate. I'll teach people how to engage in self-hypnosis by focusing on their breathing. Would that be okay? <laughs> Like, yeah, that will be fine. Just don't use the word meditation was what I got out of that, you know? And, and so again, we've, we've reached actually, uh, you know, this is a very practical area of how dualism is killing things. Because not only is, is this causing needless divisions in the scientific research on similar phenomena, but actually people really fixate on them. So for instance, uh, I, when I went to many other places, not only would people not want me to do one thing or the other, but I want to say these things have nothing to do with one another. And uh, I get that also from the Dharma people too. They're like, oh, don't talk about your dirty hypnosis and Dzogchen at the same time. <laughs> but it's only engaged in the pure Dharma. And I'm like, well, the pure Dharma, that sounds kind of monistic to me. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, pure dharma. You know, it's like, uh, hmm, I don't know. It sounds a little uh, uh, philosophically unsound the way you're approaching these things. Isn't everything empty and contextual? You know, uh, but at any rate, people really do do that. So having said that, I'm so glad that you also uh, really appreciate how important it is for us not to say, you know, meditation is pure hypnosis, or for that matter, hypnosis is pure meditation. Um, but there is some overlap in these domains. And the thing that I find the most interesting is that it's people. There, there are people who are meditative people, and there are people who are hypnotically gifted people. There are, uh, I have no doubt, and even, you know, I've done the measurements. Uh, when you find the malarepas of the world, uh, there are high hypnotizables. When you find high hypnotizables, they have mystical experiences like malarepa. They don't always talk about them because, frankly, the, the dualism of psychiatry has threatened them <laughs> and their existence outside of of state mental institutions, uh, but no doubt uh, there is an overlap in this uh, fields, most importantly, I think, in the people. And uh, that's what I find the most interesting, that the people who have the most 
advanced abilities that are the same kind of people. They're very loving, uh, they have very high in empathy. Uh, they tend to be kind of simple people, uh, but they tend to have amazing uh, fantasy life or what other people would call as fantasy, I guess. And then they have fantastic experiences. Let's just say it that way, rather than whether there's fantasy versus reality. Say that all these dualisms constantly infect this, uh, this dialogue, so to speak. Uh, oh, well. Um, but yeah, there are certain uh, overlapping phenomena, of course. There are even like phrases, you know, like just let happen whatever happens. They do find this a lot. I mean, I heard Zen teachers saying that one time. <laughs> just allow to happen whatever's happening. It's like, yeah, first, the first person I heard say that was Ernest Hilgard from Stanford, you know, giving the Stanford uh, profile of uh, hypnotic ability. It's really uh, quite amazing. So I would say, yeah, there are definite phenomena that we could that we could say really overlap. But first of all, the people, because the problem is we have this dualistic understanding of these concepts of meditation. Meditation does this. Hypnosis does that. But the context of this is that meditation does different things for the different kind of people experiencing it. Hypnosis does different things for the different kind of people experiencing that. Now, the most research on the person effect of this was uh, one of my great mentors, Ron Bacala, has just done an enormous amount of research on the different types of hypnotic experiences that people have. And he came up with the most empirically based phenomenological inventory of hypnosis uh, that's been invented this day. It's called the Phenomenology of Consciousness Inventory. He's another philosophy guy, so, but he's also a statistics guy. So he uh, invented an instrument and after many, many years found 52 key questions to ask about people's altering experiences. And so the most important thing is we not think about hypnosis as a thing, but think about it as a process that works differently in different kinds of people. And interestingly enough, those same kind of things seem to happen in people who not only are good at meditation, but Ron's research has shown that are also good at firewalking and that are also good at Christian prayer and that are also good at, uh, at long-term pot smokers. <laughs> people experiencing LSD, people experiencing ayahuasca. Ron's instrument is so good for that because uh, you can compare any mind uh, consciousness altering experience using his instrument. He normed it for that purpose. And even though it is based on a materialistic paradigm, it has integrated enough phen phenomenological experiences through the validation process that he used to create it. Uh, and it's reliable enough that it can be used to study anything. Um, so yeah, when we talk about these domains, I don't like to think of them as uh, hypnosis is this, 
Like I remember there was this time when the idiots would say, oh, hypnosis, that's a theta state of EG. And meditation, that's more like alpha. And, you know, I shouldn't say idiots because a lot of these were my friends. And even one time I used to think that myself. I'm an old EG guy. My dad did EG biofeedback while I was growing up. Even he used it on me. And I, I grew up uh, studying uh, psychophysiology and in particular EEG research. I did a lot uh, as an undergrad, at least, in some sense. And uh, the problem is that uh, actually everything is so contextual, just like a Dharma says, you know, it's just like, yeah. Would you like to see someone in a hypnotic trance uh, in theta state? No doubt. Uh, we know that high hypnotizables walk around generally with more predominance of theta uh, going on in their brain. However, uh, if you ask them to engage in an activity of sports psychology while engaging in hypnotic trance, they will very fastly go to beta. So it's all contextual on what you need. There is no biological determinism in this way. It's an interaction of what the situation is calling for in the same way that it is said that our enlightened mind has an empty nature. And so hypnosis has empty nature. Meditation has empty nature. It changes for the situations and the needs that you have in the situation. Like, I don't know if we would have to mo yoga, except that people were trying to meditate in cold caves. <laughs> you know, as, as I don't think, I don't know. I think that's how that arose. The people had the need for it, and uh, to overcome the dualism of you know being cold and and. Uh, feeling cold and feeling hungry, apparently too, uh, and living in cave. And so I think uh, it is important to resist coming up with essentialist definitions of non-dualistic phenomena. But what I can say is that the people experiencing them, are, that's where you really find the similarity. People who are good at meditation, there are the same kind of people who are good at hypnosis. Of course, there are some differences. Like there is a thing called aphantasia. Not everybody has imagery, this kind of stuff. But I find the similarities most uh, in provocative and interesting in terms of the similarities of the types of people who have the experiences, much more so than I'm interested in the similarities of the names of the phenomena, which I think are just that actually at this point. They mm -hmm. are just names, but they're important because real, the, the real people have practiced those things. So you may say I'm a very people-oriented person. I find the names are important to people, so I, find I will use the names and respect the people who embody these practices. But the people are more important to me than whether hypnosis is the theta state or fast beta. And that is of little interest to me anymore, especially since that experiment's been done to death. And, uh, and still people keep trying to do it out of the dualistic spirit science.
very interesting. But anyway, that's that's where I went first with your question. It's a very important question. And I kind of deflected on that. <laughs> you know, I think I have to admit, because I don't want to offer, I actually did once offer a definition of hypnosis um, that had to do with my own theory of it being empathy. Um, but for the most part, I'm more interested in the people that have experienced the phenomenon than I am in the so-called process. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that actually is also why one of the reasons that I wanted to ask you these questions is because, you know, we and our classmates are, um, for the most part, people who, who are students of Buddhism or who have a Buddhist practice, but who will be practicing as counselors or psychotherapists or massage therapists or in yoga. And I'm just wondering, you know, there are groups of people who are attracted to, you know, seeking um, therapy with practitioners that have this orientation, right, psychologically or spiritually. So I'm wondering if you think that there are ways that we can take maybe knowledge from the hypnotic tradition and bring it into some of the practices we might be doing as Buddhist practitioners, you know, whether that's kind of guided meditation or working with clients on visualization, or maybe even being in the more hypnotic way, kind of strategic about language, um, use of words, um, you know, kind of trying to get at someone's problem or habit or symptoms, right? More with the language of hypnosis, which is, you know, potentially permissive, indirect, but strategic. Yes, I think uh, you're really uh, pointing to another way uh, that we can really help uh, Dharma and our Dharma practitioners and Dharma people. Because no doubt, I've been in enough retreat settings to see people freaking out <laughs> every once in a while. I'll never forget one time I was assigned uh, a guy who was supposed to uh, teach me this very ritualistic way of Japanese way of uh, eating mindfully called Oriyoki. And it's really beautiful and wonderful. But um, I have to admit, I nothing could have prepared me for that, the way I grew up in, in rural Illinois, <laughs> eating barbecue meat and stuff, and then hot dogs. Uh, there are there's all these bowls and uh, different rules about when you're supposed to eat and how how you ask and you know everything. So crazy, so many rules. And to ask this man to teach me Oriyoki, who clearly was having psychotic break, and that pulled him out of. Uh, his uh, solitary retreat and asked him to teach me Oriyoki. <laughs> I could tell he was sort of like, it's like, why am I teaching an illusory person anything? <laughs> you, know, you can't exist, you bizarre character, you fiction, you know. So I, I think we can definitely offer uh, this community, many things, and not just people in acute psychotic distress, but <laughs> um, sometimes it feels to me like uh, I run into people in Dharma communities who have become very attached to ideas of the Dharma rather than the heart of the Dharma, you know. And they have developed, though I've actually never written about this, so I think we'll talk about this actually. Uh, one of the areas I do also do research on is called repressive coping. 
And this is a tendency of people to keep secrets from themselves about things that they find threatening as the original theory of what repressive coping is, that we keep secrets uh, that we find too threatening. Like, I'll give you an example. I grew up completely, since you mentioned uh, being biracial, I grew up uh, completely disliking being Sri Lankan uh, in rural Illinois. All I wanted was to be a normal white boy, and it just wasn't happening. <laughs> you know, it was really, but nevertheless, I tried. You know, I really got into all the things all the other guys were into, and I, I liked a lot of them, of course. Uh, but I didn't want to think of myself this way. So this is an example of the kind of secret a person can keep from themselves, uh, often around things that have social stigma. So when you get in this way, you have a tendency to cut off the range of your affect. I have really noticed it. Like one time uh, we were doing a Dzogchen retreat with the Tenzin and Wangyal Rinpoche. And I won't, not to, because it was kind of a secret thing, I won't say everything about it, but let's just say we were doing some very powerful Dzogchen practice and it was making us feel very blissful and loving. Uh, and um, I noticed that there was uh, a group of us who seemed to be like really, while we were practicing together, you could really see, you know, even one woman was making these sounds like, ah. <laughs> and there was a group of people that, uh, and personally, when I heard that, I was like, oh yeah, she's getting it, how wonderful, you know, and it felt good to me. I didn't make the sound myself, but I kind of felt the sound. And, uh, um, but then there was clearly another group of people in that room during the same practice that uh, were severely irritated with her. <laughs> and they were sort of like, ah, like, why does she keep making this orgasm sound, you know? Uh, and uh, they're like, oh, she's ruining our practice, you know, this kind of thing. Whereas I kind of felt in a number of us who were seen to be getting it was sort of like, I don't know, it was almost like frosting on the cake for me to hear her doing that because it felt really genuine, you know, and it felt, it was wonderful to behold that and to feel, be a part of that. Like I, I didn't, I didn't essentialize it. And I actually, I tried not to pull it in too much because then I was out of my own experience, but I could just let it be as it was and and uh, enjoy and where, you know, and even when people like were bothering and you know complaining about her, I would hear them sometimes between sessions say, "Who is that person making the, the terrible noises?" You know this kind of thing. Uh, even I was like, "Okay, they're you know just a little discouraged. They haven't got their practice together, so you know I'm not going to push them away." Um, but it was making quite a number of us like become very very blissful. To do this. All right, it was too long. <laughs> <laughs> but we're doing this uh, Tuma yoga and really very blissful and very powerful. Uh, then even funnier thing happened was 
that as we got more and more uh, blissful, sometimes we strayed more into the crazy uh, playful way and started behaving a little outrageously and maybe in a way that was, you know, not so much wise, but at least it was fun. We started having food fights during <laughs> during lunch. I didn't know how it happened, but we started throwing food at one another. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, the folks who didn't really seem to be getting the practice, they started to get this very sad meditation look. You know, and that, sometimes we call the, actually we developed this term during that retreat. They are like sad meditators. <laughs> And it still looked like very austere, even like uh, you know some of those Thai statues and things, you know, and the, the, all the ribs are sticking out. And, uh, but I think so. I, I'll finish the story, and then I'll, I'll get to why I'm talking about this. <laughs> what up happens was um, finally one of these people was very sad meditator says to, uh, went to Rinpoche and started actually complaining about uh, myself and several other people in particular who were, you know, maybe too attached to our bliss perhaps. <laughs> and that I would have accepted that as a possibility. Uh, I didn't feel that way, but it could have been possible. I would have entertained the question. Uh, And then they said, oh, they are throwing food. Uh, they were splashing monks in the pool. And literally, the monks were splashed us first, actually. <laughs> we jumped in the pool, and monks began splashing us. And we're splashing monks and behaving crazy, uh, just having normal fun, silly things. And uh, and so they said, oh, splash monk. Also, uh, you know, making bad noises during <laughs> practice making joyful noises during the practice telling jokes you know laughing very loud and then uh this, uh, this making my practice impossible these people are bad and then uh ribache i said to them maybe you should be more like these people <laughs> <laughs> why did you join them why did you sit at the table with them eat with them throw food <laughs> And then, and then they had the honesty and decency to then come and tell me the whole story. It literally was. They said, and Ripper said, I should come and sit with you. And I think he is correct. <laughs> now, the reason I'm telling the story is I do notice that uh, sometimes people relate to Zug Chen and these practices in this very austere way that I think has a quality of grasping along with it that invalidates it. Now, I don't mean to say that, you know, doing austere practices is bad because I definitely want to do the, some of those myself and have done some. And I don't mind that at all, like, you know, engaging in austerities involving restrictions of speech or changes in diet or fasting, these kinds of things I think are sacred and can be good. You just don't want to do them in a very attached way. And so I, when I see people do, doing that, 
that are like my uh, good friends who didn't seem to be able to get too mold because they were taking it too damn seriously. Whereas uh, I allowed it to be whatever it was. And there was no doubt that it did remind me of some of these childlike energies. And, and I think allowing them to flow through me actually and not resisting them, like not resisting the part of me that doesn't want to be seen as childlike. Because then no one will respect you, you naughty person, you naughty trickster. No one will trust you. You say aestheticism is important. Because <laughs> we all know something is true or it isn't. You know? <laughs> um, but at any rate, uh, so I, I really feel uh, that there is a place for uh, austerity in practice. So that's not where my argument is. It's about repressing one's emotional experience. So I think when people practice austerities, if they're doing that in an open way and they're not grasping onto the practice, then they will get benefit from that. But even if you do a blissful practice with too much grasping, like, oh, the fire should look like this, and the uh, syllables should look like this as they go round and round. And they will ask the teacher a million questions about the very most precise visualizations uh, and get so hung up on it. And I think actually, if you have that kind of visual practice ability, which I'll be honest, I don't. <laughs> then I think if you have that kind of precision, like this look around the lotus flower, around the heart and this, this one should be this color, this petal should be this color, the syllable, this one should be Ram on here, Hung on here, and, and Hri over here. Uh, then if you have that kind of capacity for visual imagery, then yes, just to feel fully immersed in the practice, I believe you should, you should actually attempt to attach to that level of specificity. However, I think if you have that level of attachment and you don't have that level of ability, then you're fucked. Then uh, you're like the unhappy meditators, you know, because you're like trying to get this non-dualistic experience with this very precise dualistic visual imagery. And you think if you don't get it, then you're not gonna have the experience. And that creates an expectancy that blocks two-mo experience. Meanwhile, if you're a bunch of weirdos who throw food at one another, then you could start to feel the joy in your heart that was there all along anyways. <laughs> and now suddenly two more works because you didn't have this uh, you know, precise expectancy about visual imagery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very tricky area here. And you now I, I really, as I don't mean to say that I think that the precision around uh, visual imagery is not important. It's clearly quite important to the right kind of person. Mm -hmm. But if you're not that person, or heaven forbid, you have aphantasia and you have no visual imagery, it doesn't mean you can't practice too mo. It just means your too mo practice needs to look different. And that's the one thing I've always loved about Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche is he teaches the person in front of him. And he, he helps them define their innate experience rather than 
One, one time he even told me, because I was, I didn't want to do, uh, I didn't want to say this is a dream. I was actually afraid to say this is a dream in the lucid dreaming practice. I was afraid to say that because I grew up with all kinds of crazy dissociation in my life. I thought if I say this is a dream, I'm going to get even worse. You know, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm frightened. So I went and asked him. I was like, oh, God, you know, what should I do? And then uh, he says, well, actually, this is a very ancient tradition. and I, I love and respect very much. But maybe, why don't you try saying this is real? <laughs> then you say this is this is not the traditional way, but while we're on retreat, why don't you know you say this is real and then come back to me tomorrow and we'll see what has happened, you know? And so then I started to say, like, this is real. And then that started to make things feel unreal. <laughs> no, I had to develop. Then I was like, I'm just messing with my head with language. <laughs> Fuck this stupid stuff. So I will, yes, I will. I said, like, okay, I came back the next day. I, was like, I started to say, this is real. And that felt good. Uh, but then I was like, oh, actually, why am I making this huge distinction between real and unreal? That's we're practicing lucid dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I making this huge difference? Like that was actually was the point of this, you know, was to become more mindful of how things really are. They're dreamlike all the time anyways. Uh, mm. At least the way we experience it is, you know, we never leave the dream. When we're mm -hmm. awake, never. There's no difference. Even Steve Coslin's research shows that mm -hmm. uh, with hypnosis. And that's actually perfect transition, I think, because I was actually kind of curious what your thoughts were in terms of, you know, the dreamlike nature of reality and kind of working with clients or patients through hypnosis to bring them into that space in a more safe and collaborative way. Because as you said, we're working with the patient or the client that's in front of us. Not everyone has a background in Vajrayana practices or Dzogchen or, you know, the, no. the very kind of um, sophisticated, uh, you know, the history of working with the dream self or the this subtle self, you know, the second psychological self. So I guess I was thinking that maybe one way that hypnosis and, uh, you know, Buddhist psychotherapy or Buddhist counseling might be able to work in tandem is because we can use perhaps hypnotic traditions or hypnotherapy as a way to bring people into the experience of working with the dream self, um, you know, uh, in a collaborative way, right? You know, in a, in a guided way that is maybe more secular and I don't want to conflate the two because one has a deep spiritual background and one is more secular right but maybe that secular space can sometimes be right for the right client to allow them to engage with with the dream self or you know the self that you're engaging with in illusory body yoga or lucid dream yoga yeah I think this is a great possibility and it would rectify the split that uh Herbert Benson and uh, John Kabat-Zinn uh, gave to us around secular meditation. And so I think we could, um, like you may notice, like uh, in the study of meditation, they didn't start with Tubo. <laughs> they didn't start with a Powa, <laughs> you know. They did in transpersonal psychology, but the, you know, not in uh, medicine, not in mainstream clinical psych. Right. You know, the POA and, uh, you know, CHUD and other things we studied in transpersonal. But um, so I would really like to see that, just what you've said. Uh, I would really like to see that. 
I would like to see in the way that Alejandro Chol Reich uh, has started to uh, do uh, more, more than study started. It's been more than 10 years on this now. I think maybe uh, more than five uh, studies looking at different Tibetan meditation or yoga practices, the silent practice basically for helping people with cancer and other conditions uh, to manage anxiety. I'd really, really like to see elements of these traditions either be put into formats like John Kabat-Zinn and Herbert Benson did for meditation, but also for some of these other things like Tibetan yoga. And at the same time, some of these things do have direct correspondence. There is already a hypnotic tradition of lucid dream research. My good friend Deirdre Baird has done a lot of that. Wonderful person. Uh, amazing artist as well. Um, so I think we could do it around things like lucid dreaming. It, it is actually no interference there. There is already a tradition in Western psychology of lucid dreaming research, and it has already encountered Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, there's a long history. Uh, even Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche hang out with Stephen LaBerge, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's a long history of uh, interaction. And before him, uh, Namki Norbu and other uh, Tibetan gurus has really given all these teachings and made them public. You can read the books, there are videos, uh, you can take uh, online classes even. Um, so I think there are certain standalone phenomena like that where it's possible, like particularly lucid dreaming I think there are some things I'm reluctant myself to do. And that would be like Trekcho and Togol. Uh, I can't really think of a hypnotic equivalent of that besides our work on hypnotic hallucinations. And that is all experimental, you know, and so I'm encouraged to use the approach of bridge there more in terms of not clinical psychology, but more in terms of experimental psychology. Like I feel like uh, some of these phenomena, I feel like we want to study more before the potential to misunderstand Togol has got to be enormous. <laughs> I mean, it's just to say, you know, it's, these are just, you know, post-hypnotic suggestions that your teacher gave you or something. Uh, but then the problem with that is we don't really have a good enough way of understanding what's amazing about post-hypnotic suggestion. Like when you right. just say it's, it's just a post-hypnotic suggestion, it's actually a tool that <laughs> changes reality. <laughs> so right. is that really so bad, you know, right. uh, to say that? So I, I don't know, some of the things I think I'm a little more reluctant, but things where there already has been connection made, like lucid dreaming, uh, certainly Tibetan yoga and where other things. And certainly the philosophies of mind, like that is where I think everything is fine, just comparing uh, the philosophies. And then to whatever extent the practices can also be studied using the same paradigms 
then I think we might get to a place where I would also integrate for patients. So generally speaking, when people come to see me, 100% learn mindfulness meditation. 100% will eventually learn some self-hypnosis. And these days also I'm teaching Tibetan yoga because my teacher gave me permission. Mm -hmm. uh, however, uh, to go beyond that in, in clinical work, only I have done when uh, it has been someone who already studied with a very powerful master. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have treated uh, folks who study with Dilgo Kensei and, uh, you know, many different uh, powerful teachers. And the way that I treat them is more about remembering what their master had said. And so I treat them very much like a client-centered psychotherapist at that point. I don't teach them about the bomb. I ask them about what their teacher taught them and how can they reconnect with what their teacher taught and maybe get it, you know, uh, at a deeper level. Or what did they believe their teacher you know, would really want them to do? So I... I don't actually then begin teaching, even though I've been uh, given permission to teach in Saarung and uh, you know meditation and things. Only the mindfulness and only uh, Tibetan yoga will I myself do. And I didn't even used to do that actually, <laughs> but when a teacher gives uh, permission, then I thought, okay, I'll do these things. And also there's really good research on uh, all of these things now about their benefits including uh, Alejandro Chorag did a lot of the Tibetan yoga stuff. So I can even say uh, fundamentalist Christians from uh, Texas do very well with Tibetan yoga <laughs> because of Alejandro Chorag's research. It's really good, actually. Um, but uh, other than that, I think some of the most important stuff, I don't know, maybe I'm thinking too much like a... Uh, experimental psychologist, even though I think I'm probably more clinical than that. Uh, I don't know. See, there's this dualism again. Are you clinical or are you experimental? Right. It's really crazy the way we define categories of experience. And when really, I think the best clinicians are always people with great experimental ideas. And the very best in the experimentalist are able to capture the truth of the therapy room and what mm -hmm. that interaction is like in the therapeutic relationship. Mm -hmm. In hypnosis, we've had some really fantastic people who were like that, like, and still living now, like David Spiegel's this way. It's fantastic. Uh, experimentalist, did all of this great fMRI stuff, and yet also uh, his fantastic clinician as well. And it really comes off in his clinical writing, of course. At any rate, um, so that's kind of where I'm at. Let, let me ask you where you're at, though, because you also have taken Samaya vows, right? 
Do you think I go too far? And how far would you go? <laughs> I mean, I think I think I agree that it's really important not to disconnect the practices from the spiritual aspects of the teaching, you know, the um, dedication of the practice to benefit all sentient beings, right? Because there is something about the hypnotherapy side that is more individualistic, you know, it's it's kind of more uh, intra-psychic, right? And it doesn't necessarily have this openness and, this, and the kind of giving and the spiritual component that comes from, um, you know, Buddhist practice. So I would say that I it's they're in no way replaceable, but I, I do feel that there is something about providing a secular doorway, right, to certain aspects of experience that then allow people to have a more fluid and open sense of self, you know, a greater uh, idea of possibility, a greater idea of the fluidity of the self. Um, and I think in the Western tradition that hypnosis has provided a pathway for a lot of people to experience both the ritual of induction and the power of ritual and the power of expectation and the power of the therapeutic relationship in like a real way and that being in a absorb uh, you know in the state of absorption which isn't very common for people who don't have a you know a meditative practice right like most people are not necessarily um voluntarily able by themselves to go into that place of absorption having someone there to facilitate it for you and to be um strategically therapeutic can be very powerful right and to do that in the kind of person-centered kind of rogerian way of having empathy, unconditional positive regard, uh, you know, and a real intention to um, to work collaboratively with the client to bring about change, you know, and change that can be very impactful. I also think just around areas of pain management alone, right, and the way that chronic pain can affect, um, you know, suicidality, kind of create depression, you know, there's just like a lot of aspects of pain and psychosomatic uh, mind-body connections between pain that hypnosis, I think, has a lot to bring to the table um potentially <laughs> and that even those experiences right like when someone from a secular perspective starts to work with their own pain or starts to work with their own um uh, sensations you know bodily sensations in a way that transforms their mood like there can be a new sense of possibility fluidity you know that can open the door to kind of a greater spiritual connection um whether through buddhism or through other practices right like not just buddhism any form of religion that's pro-social and loving and connected and uh helps people re-engage with the world at large with other people and brings the best part of themselves out which i think comes back to kind of your comment about just more beauty more aesthetics you know bringing kind of this positive vision of the world that we want to create into all aspects of our practice as therapists um and thinking about these different traditions we can pull from and it doesn't have to be so regimented or dualistic right like I don't think it has to be like uh, uh I think as long as there's the right intention and co collaborative empowering relationship between the therapist and the client um you know there can be ethical practice and we don't have to be too concerned about uh labeling <laughs> you know labeling yeah like labeling yeah. what we're doing right <laughs> Yeah, I, I really, uh, hearing you speak of this, uh, yeah, we're in very similar places. Uh, I I don't I don't feel like I'm ready yet to fully integrate, you know, some aspects of um, the practices. However, I've often learned that it's really unnecessary. So when people did come to see me who are, you know, very advanced Dzogchen practitioners, uh, and, you know, they wanted to discuss how their practice could be related to hypnosis. And one thing that I did notice was that many times I did not actually have to teach Dzogchen to them 
and that uh, all that was necessary was to do the hypnotic uh, work that I would do with anyone in which I'm fully empowered and authorized to do in that sense, you know, by the tradition of clinical psychology. And then often what happened was I would, I would remark to them, how does this seem to you in relationship to the other kinds of experiences you've had in your life? And then they would immediately then go, you know, oh, this reminds me so much of when I had the pointing out instruction in. Like when you gave the, you know, instruction about how to use a hypnosis to enter lucid dreaming or how to use hypnosis to talk with uh, other parts of myself, you know, around imaginary table or something like this. It reminded me of like when Dilgo Kensei said this and this and that to me, you know, and and then the interesting thing is that at least in the people that I've worked with, without me having to teach them Dzogchen, it seems to have really helped reignite their passion to practice their tradition. Because a lot of times people are coming to me in this situation that feels some sort of dissatisfaction that happened while they were practicing Dharma. Something didn't go well on retreat or you know, some kind of problem happened there. And they've many times either lost touch with their teacher or the teacher died or the lineage itself uh, is in trouble. And so then these people, they will, you you understand Dharma and you know hypnosis. So maybe you will teach me the hypnosis side of things because the dharma side didn't go so well and so like okay great i'll just teach you purely about this and we'll integrate what you already know that's that's no problem we would integrate what you already know and uh so i encourage them to follow up on what they learned and what they liked and to and it's, it's, it's interesting, learning a little bit of hypnosis often seems to bring people to respect what they already had learned. Or even some people said like, I didn't understand what on earth they were talking about until first we did this with hypnosis. Like I didn't actually have any understanding of what this was supposed to be about until we started doing things uh, using hypnosis. So, mm -hmm. I think that is a, an area that I feel really good about. Mm -hmm. I still feel nervous though about what I don't understand about uh, Dzogchen and Vajrayana and want to be humble about that because I could be fucked up. <laughs> In fact, well, I know I am actually. Yeah, I think we all have that. We yeah. all have that feeling. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, I will say, uh, I experience uh, enough benefit myself through going through this simultaneously, through having grown up in the hypnosis lineage and grown up uh, also with the Buddhist background and then encountering the bun. Uh, and so I, I can say that it has worked for me and it has mm -hmm. been exceedingly helpful and possibly uh, saved my life personally, uh, a number of times. Uh, I mean, actually, literally. <laughs> That's another episode. <laughs> oh, I had a Guillain-Barre syndrome, almost uh, stopped breathing. Uh -huh. yeah. um, so I can't say it's good for me, but I, I try to remain very humble 
I'm not empowered to teach uh, Dzogchen. Uh, I've been empowered to practice Dzogchen and that's what I love to do. But uh, I'm very, um, I don't know, I feel actually devotion is a good thing. I really like, and I'm, I'm also skeptical whether uh, it's been good for clinical psychology that we took the devotion out of it. Like for instance, in clinical in clinical psychology, all the devotion that is written about, like how we should be devoted to our client, we have no manual where it says, "Here's how to be a good client." You should be devoted to your therapist. Now, there are many cultural reasons why we don't do that. <laughs> and I'm not saying that we do need to do that, but there's something. Like actually, uh, I have a good friend who wrote a book that is actually kind of like this, but it's, it's written for academics though. It's called How, How Clients Make Therapy Work. And it goes into the research about what clients do to make therapy work. But that should, that is devotion actually, devotion through practice, which is mm -hmm. different. I mean, the word devotion in English connotes many things that we don't like uh, and that we have all these cultural misunderstandings about what gurus are and things. Uh, even people use that word pejoratively, guru, you know. Who's your guru, Ian? And I actually heard someone say that in Missouri. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I, I want to be really careful around doing this because uh, I feel like uh, there's so many things that um, there's so much more low-hanging fruit that's safer to eat. <laughs> I think <laughs> really, I think I encourage everyone to climb as high as the tree personally. But if you're going to guide other people along with you, you better already be fully enlightened as far as I'm concerned. And I know I'm not. So I, I really uh, want to be humble and devoted to the guidelines that my teachers gave me, which right. was not to fully mix things unless right. I was fully realized. Right, right. No, that makes perfect sense. That is a very, I think, healthy and humble attitude about it. But I am curious, you know, it's just my kind of, I think the last question I kind of had was what you were describing about when you do teach hypnosis, you know, which is your expertise and you're fully qualified to teach and train people in, you know, what are the few things that you do teach to people? You know, for example, people like us, people who might be Buddhist counselors or psychotherapists, mm -hmm. are there a couple of things you often teach? You know, what is yes. your recommendation for our training? Yes, as, 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 as we move forward. <laughs> Anyone who has ever done any mantra work, you know, saying, oh, my name, my name, my name, or, or in the bun, we go, oh, you're ready to learn post-hypnotic suggestion like that, you know? Mm -hmm. So I teach uh, people, it's very possible uh, who have done a lot of mantra work that can easily learn uh, how to use post-hypnotic suggestion for anything at all that they need. Usually I start with just neutral words like calm, relaxed, and free. But this is a wonderful thing, you know, like, because, you know, Dharma people, a lot of times, if they are like the, the people I was describing who may have become over-intellectualized in their practice, 
and they'll spend most of their time debating theories of emptiness rather than practicing <laughs> you know which is a kind of practice too so i don't i don't want to you know be too much of a mischief maker but uh, uh no doubt study and practice is, is good in debate but if they're all really connected to that and you're not really experiencing you know the emptiness uh, of one's own experience in a moment-to-moment -moment way, you know, theory is just making more problems, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think a lot of times people who have that kind of grasping too much to the concepts of the Dharma really could use some basic tools for managing anxiety because that is what causes repressive coping as... Mm -hmm that people are over-intellectualized about what they think their ideal self-presentation should be for their teacher. Mm -hmm. I see this many times, it's like people out of um, the beauty of what could be unattached devotion ends up in this repressive coping. Like someone is trying to prove how devoted they are and instead, all they're doing is repressing more and more and falling further and further away from the direct perception. And maybe there is a way in which, I don't know, you repress enough, you have some kind of crisis that brings you the truth and Europa hits you with a sandal on the face and finally you get how stupid you've been. Maybe that is how that works. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I think some of these people could just use some basic skills in anxiety management. Mm -hmm. And learning how to let things be as they are, like you're being told, like, like what does it mean to let things be as they are? How can I be the student that looks like they are letting things be as they are? Should I have long hair? Should I have short hair? You know, that's that's kind of how this ends up getting screwed up. Is that people start thinking about how can I fake it? <laughs> one way i've noticed that people try to fake mindfulness is this old obsession about precision mm -hmm. like oh like even people will try to subtly mention that while you're on retreat they're like did you happen to hear at 9 10 p.m there was a woodpecker sound while we were in session <laughs> <laughs> And if I did hear that, I would be happy. But, and you know, there is something good about being, having uh, presence, no doubt. But the way that people will try to fake that is by noticing all these precise observations, you know. And yeah, precision in vision or any other sense is just as diluted. You know, now you've become an expert in an erroneous view. That's <laughs> really that's a, the term that comes from Tenzin Wangyal. He talks about people who become experts in erroneous views, and mm. actually he was including psychology in that. <laughs> you know, because I have no awareness of the emptiness of self, even though all the evidence shows that there is not stability in personality uh, at all. None mm. of the are very stable except for introversion really uh, extroversion is very modifiable but anyway yeah I, I think this is uh, very exciting times and I must say uh, 
Could I ask you a question? <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm very interested in people. You know, as obviously anyone who studies clinical psych, but uh, you mentioned several things that uh, I, I wanted to get your take on these uh, experiences. Uh, so, first of all, I wanted to ask, um, tell me about uh, the intervention again. You was mentioning that you use, and uh, you mentioned that it's really helped you not to. Uh, uh, experience, I guess, as much craving uh, for using your phone. Uh, mm -hmm. Has it had any unintended side side effects? That's a good question. I mean, I think that for the first month that I uh, asked, so after the intervention, I went through, I would honestly say like three to four weeks of withdrawal, right? Like I experienced true dopamine withdrawal. I felt like my mood was extremely low. I had like no, <laughs> I had little, you know, I had little enthusiasm for normal activities, right? Like, and I think it helped to have, you know, basic psychological understanding of dopamine and the way the phone is really kind of this trigger. And with homeostasis, obviously you're lowering your baseline levels of dopamine, right? So having that mm -hmm. understanding helped me kind of go through this period in a more with like more, I guess, kind of equanimity, like with more, with kind of like a less aversive feeling about it, right? So I had that experience. And at the same time, I was trying to kind of, you know, through diet and lifestyle and the things that I've learned through Tibetan medicine and my Soedigpa practice to just kind of like live in a way that was healthier and kind of supporting myself like through this process of separating from my phone. But I will say that, you know, I don't think that I would have been able to make this separation from my phone without the hypno, without the hypnotherapic without the hypnotherapy, because I also am a believer in talk therapy. I have my own therapist. I'm a student of psychotherapy, right? So I'm not saying that I don't value the, the I, not that I don't value the normal therapeutic process of talk therapy, but I really truly don't believe that I could have gotten to this place only through talk therapy. There was something about like the intervention that was very powerful. And I will say that what I didn't share when I first brought up the intervention was that there was kind of a moment of emotional catharsis, you know, where when I was kind of in the age regression and, and fighting off this black mass of kind of these feelings that I was trying to push away, you know, I cried and I surrendered to that. I surrendered in that moment, right? And there was some kind of release that happened um, as a result. And so I do think that that feeling and like that connection to my memory and the kind of intensity that came from connecting it to childhood memory was something that unlocked this kind of hidden intelligence in terms of just putting aside this craving for the phone and reaching for the phone, you know, to try to avoid negative emotions. Um, so that was for me, like the most interesting part about it, you know, that there was this so many, so many senses were combined, you know, there was kind of my inner world, which I was experiencing, I was able to visualize quite clearly kind of this experience. And then the hypnotherapist that I was working with was kind of physically pushing down on me. So I was having this kind of somatic experience of like fight, right. And so that part of it, I think, was really interesting, right? Or like it was unique or it was distinct from other forms of like dealing with this kind of problem. And it it's just really interesting. <laughs> it was a powerful experience. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, so I was just thinking, you know, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, Vajrayana and Dzogchen, uh, would you say that uh, it would be fair to say that catharsis is related in some way to uh, cessation of uh, um, clinging, you know? 
I do feel like, yeah, the surrender, there was some aspect of the surrender that was very powerful, right? And in surrender in a safe space. And I guess that's what I think is unique about it. And I will say that when I did have this hypnosis experience, I was reminded of an experience I had had being guided by our teacher, Dr. Nina Chenak Song, in kind of a, you know, simulation of a dream yoga type of experience, you know, which was during our waking reality. So that was really the parallel I had in my mind. Um, I think there is something about addiction that um, where you're setting up a battle, right? Like between your executive self and the rest of your body. And it really does create this grasping to the idea of the executive self. You know, I used to smoke cigarettes too, right? Like I've experienced kind of these very kind of uh, rigid kind of, uh, you know, solid seeming feelings of craving, but the executive self is telling the rest of the body what to do. And then there's a battle. And I think what was effortless about this was, you know, really destroying like the power of the executive self and bypassing the resistance, right? Like that you're experiencing and realizing that in reality, like the holistic part of you that's below the executive self is healthy and is, you know, healing oriented and does have intelligence and wisdom. And the executive self is really kind of this illusion of a boss, right? That we're privileging. And so that's, I guess, the message that I feel like is worth sharing or, you know, for me coming out of this experience mm -hmm. is really this dissolution of this executive self which is something you can read about and understand as a student of psychology, but you cannot truly experience until you do something like what I experienced in hypnotherapy, where you're, I know I'm exploding it or something, right? Like you're kind of like destroying this mastery of this fake, you know, authoritarian executive self. And I will say like, I, I have a question for you also, which is, I feel like one of the reasons that there's skepticism about hypnosis in the Western community or maybe in the community at large is because it is effortless, right? And that there isn't this battle and there isn't this mastery, not always effortless, but that there can be like a more natural effortless result, which can be quick and spontaneous, right? Which doesn't have to do so much with kind of like control or it doesn't have to do so much with mastery or kind of these pop psychology ideas of like Freudian unconscious, right? And I think what you were talking about at the beginning of this podcast is actually also really important because these ideas about, you know, serotonin and depression, you know, these false ideas that uh, trickle down into the public consciousness never really get refuted. And so I kind of think like these Freudian ideas, right, about this chaotic, un ungovernable, you know, selfish, kind of brutal unconscious um, is really powerful and that people are still thinking in this dualistic way about the unconscious versus the conscious mind. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, even, uh, yeah, that um, there are distinct levels, right, in that uh, we're not simultaneously, uh, which, you know, as I understand the Zogchen model of mine is that, yeah, when we're relating to the essence, then uh, the base, then uh, everything is, is present at once, you know, whereas, yeah, we have these sort of <clears throat> It's really only in, uh, you know, treatment with uh, ego state therapy or something like that, where you would have more than one person out at the same time, you know, right. unless there were already, you know, dissociative disorders patient, maybe. But yeah, that's actually a really good point. Uh, and I really liked also um, your focus on um, executive ego. You know, and 
in the way that we're experiencing uh, cathartic experience. I think that's definitely uh, one way we could understand like what it means to relinquish grasp. Like who is relinquishing grasp? Right, exactly. Right, exactly. That's exactly it. It's like, who is it? Like, right, this, this phone grab, grabbing person, right? Or like this, it's even just a loop. I mean, maybe it's even less, you know, it's maybe it's even more habitual, right? Like it's the executive self is just perceiving the loop and thinking the executive self is in, in charge of what's happening or the arm reaching out, right? To touch the phone, right? There's so much going on just in that one act, like to reach out and touch the phone. And so that just kind of breaking through the illusion of choice, even that like there is an executive self that is telling your arm to reach out and touch the phone is something that's powerful. I think. Yeah, that is so true. And, uh, that's one thing that often I thought, like, uh, one thing, phenomena that could really be used in pointing out instructions would be all kinds of these involuntary uh, movement behaviors, you know, like hands right. coming together and this kind of stuff, right. or uh, for that matter, um, auditory hallucinations and things. Um, now the voice of your guru is coming to you. <laughs> the screen opens up, and what is he saying? You know, actually, there is something like that already. It's uh, in the Red Book, not Jung one, but the Milton, not Milton uh -huh. Erickson one, the Big Hypnosis Red Book of all the hypnotic formulas uh, published by Ash and Corydon Hammond is the last editor of that, if I remember correctly. Uh, there is something called uh, meeting your inner advisor, you know. Uh, so, I, yeah, it just seems like uh, there's some benefit in looking at um, polypsychic nature. That is one thing that I find really annoying about mainstream uh, clinical psychology and counseling is how needlessly... Um, illusory it is around the nature of identity and so it's really like you're only trying to work with one part of the person right and a lot of times the person who shows up to therapy isn't who needs the help right you know, That's actually they're like oh you're in there and find out the part of the person that really needs the help they show up and they do all the homework and look i haven't gotten better and they did right. every single thing and i haven't gotten better and I was like, yeah, it's because we're doing false self therapy. You're the part of you that is suffering I have yet to meet. <laughs> right. right. No, that's true. I mean, and right. And I think you can reach that place ideally with talk therapy, but I do think that hypnotherapy provides a shortcut or something faster, right? And like in this yeah. world, I feel like there's also an impatience. And whether that's good or bad is debatable, but like, I do think there needs to be more speed, I guess, in the way that we're treating psychological issues, especially things like phone addiction that are so prevalent in people's lives. Um, and that just as there's a resurgence of interest in psychedelic therapy, I do think there's a resurgence of interest or an acceptance of hypnosis because people also want results that are quicker. And like, that's just the reality, you know, that's just the reality. <laughs> like there's, you know, I think people have like a, a, a new, speed that they're living life with right and that they're absorbing information with that they're experiencing the world and a sense of um you know i don't know i, I hesitate to say looming apocalypse but there's definitely a lot of aspects of our society that um, are crashing down upon us right like at this moment uh, <laughs> and there's like a sense of needing to 
you know, like address like what's happening in your own life within this greater context, as you said, this kind of greater semi-dystopian, like socioeconomic situation that we're in. Um, yeah. So I think hypnosis is relevant in offering, you know, a, a more, a more effortless path to connect with the part of the self that needs healing, like, which is basically what you just said, but, you know, just a, a different path to let that part of you out. Right. And to do it in a safe way. And like, you can't always do that with language and words and, you know, with a, with a, even in a safe therapeutic relationship, it's going to take a lot longer to bring that part of yourself out. You know, I feel that for myself, like with my experience. Yeah. So thank you for uh, answering that. Actually, where you just went is related to the other thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, which is, so the person that I know that did the most research on this is Marty Sapp. Marty Sapp was really, uh, I think he's still with us. Uh, well, I think he retired uh, from University of uh, uh, Milwaukee, uh, University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. And he did all this really great research, kind of looking at different um, cultural variables around using hypnosis. And one of the findings I remember from his research was that uh, matching, you know, uh, really did help therapeutic relationships. And then in general, right, around race. Uh, and in general, that's the finding outside of hypnosis as well, you know. So obviously having someone who's like you work with you, you know, you get yeah. them better, they get you better, this kind of thing, and helps with rapport. And, and also, uh, honestly, the underlying research in empathy shows that um, we empathize more with people who are like us. So maybe even this is reflecting why I'm asking this question, actually. So I've often felt like... Um, because... I've matched so few peoples. Like the only time I ever had the experience of being around people who looked like me was when I was in Colombo, Sri Lanka. <laughs> <laughs> Even uh, going to Nepal and India. Yes, I look similar, uh, but I'm a certain kind of Eurasian. Wow. And uh, at least to my eyes, uh, I feel that mainly when I'm in Sri Lanka. Um, and otherwise, I assume that to a certain extent, uh, I don't look similar to other people. And then some people will conflate me with being Native American, in particular here in Colorado. Yeah. Uh, they'll ask me what, even Native Americans will ask what tribe I'm from. Mm -hmm. And the, where I wanted to go with this is, I wondered if you ever uh, thought that impacted um, well, just as you know, we said about Marty Sapp's stuff about hypnosis and clinical psychology, but ever wondered whether that might be expect uh, it, um, affecting either your personal experience in, is hypnosis being multi or biracial or do you think it might impact 
how clients would uh, perceive you as a hypnotist. I think it's a very, yeah, I definitely think it's impacted me for sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, so my ancestry is my mother's side is Japanese and my father's side is Irish. Right. So I think there's also kind of a, you know, it's very rare to meet another Irish and Japanese person. <laughs> like, you know, there's yeah. more a commonality with meeting other people that are Eurasian or biracial in general. And there's kind of a shared experience, I think, that links all people who are explicitly multicultural or multiracial, because I think really we're also just the poster children, right? Most people have most people have complex cultural histories in reality, but I think explicitly biracial people are kind of carrying the water for the rest of society, right? By kind of occupying this uh, liminal space, let's say, like between rigid categories. And I do think that's one of the reasons that probably potentially biracial or multiracial people are less dualistic or maybe attracted to like less dual philosophies because there's a life experience that has occurred, right? Which is already kind of shatter shattering rigid boundaries and kind of, you know, highlighting how dualism is harmful, right? It's harmful and it kind of can perpetuate very um, unequal and kind of inhumane uh, relations between people, right? And then also coming from the background of like a a loving, hopefully, like a, you know, in some cases, like a, a intimate relationship that's loving, you know, or seeing kind of like the potential for union, right? Between different different worlds or different worldviews or kind of different cultural traditions gives you a different place to practice from. And so I, I think on one hand, I do feel like a certain loneliness, right? Like as a biracial practitioner of psychotherapy, especially because there is a lot to be said for, I think, having a therapist that is, you know, uh, has familiarity and um, experience with your cultural tradition. You know, I think there's a there's a lot to be said for kind of matching as they're saying and ha not having to explain. And, you know, my, my psychotherapist is a multiracial person who practices specifically with, um, with people who are biracial and multiracial. So that has been a huge relief for me, you know, so I'm not going to say that it's not important. It is important, but <laughs> I also think the non-dual perspective is to kind of see the individuality of each client and the universality of the struggles that we're experiencing. Right. And kind of bridging this, so I think it's, it is, it's like holding this reality on one level, you know, kind of the, I guess, gross level, which is that there are a lot of experiences that are unique to biracial or multiracial people, especially in a country like America, which is a white supremacist nation that's founded on genocide, right? And where there's very kind of rigid and distinct values that are assigned to race, skin color, the way you look, how willing you are to fit into one of those categories. And that for biracial and multiracial people in America, there's a lot of pressure to, to pick a, a side or to pick some kind of identity that you're walking through the world in, right? And that's extremely psychologically harmful. So um, I think on one level, I'm trying to hold on to my biracial identity and accept that I need a space that's safe, especially in my own therapy, in my own therapeutic process with my therapist. But on the other hand, to feel that I can participate, you know, with the greater community, um, you know, and the diversity that is there and to kind of, um, you know, promote and um, increase the level to which BIPOC people, clients, therapists feel like they can be safe and included in this therapy of uh, psycho, you know, this psychotherapeutic world, which has been so white, at least in the Western tradition. And I guess the reason that the Eastern tradition and bringing this into my life and my study of Soarigpa is important is because I want the, the, the Eastern and Asian parts of my cultural heritage to be represented in my work, you know, and in my professional world and to have that be explicit. Um, and, and that's a relief, I guess. 
Uh, that's really a fascinating uh, answer. I, I really feel a lot in common with that. Like I, I feel uh, the difficulty in integrating uh, dualistic uh, racial identities has made me uh, more open, I think, to other people who are given uh, marginalized identities in particular, like uh, it's probably no accident that I you know, grew up uh, with lots of uh, people who are gay, uh, bisexual, and uh, lesbian, and trans, uh, even though I'm straight, uh, I feel like uh, if you have something like this, then it tends to make one, yeah, no doubt, if you can't achieve the dualism, <laughs> right? Yeah. right? And you have to embrace the shadow or something. I don't yeah, know. that's true. The ambiguity, I guess, yeah, not the shadow. That's true. Uh, yeah. And I think that has actually opened you know, the empathy up, as you're saying, and compassion. First, that you needed to understand yourself, right? Right. And, uh, and then, then empathy flows outward that way. You can understand yourself, a good chance. You can understand at least the motives of people who are somewhat similar. Yeah. Um, or have a similar theme like alienation, I guess. Uh, but uh, the other side of this question I wanted to ask you, too. Uh, which is, do you think this will have implications for how you will be as a uh, as a as a counselor in terms of how how people will perceive you as uh, racially or also uh, as a woman or any other social occasion? But in particular, I was thinking about since we shared this one, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm a Scottish and Sri Lankan, so also an interesting mix, you know. Uh, but um, I have had experiences like this that made me think. Uh, but I'm curious to see what you would say. Like, do you think either as a hypnotist or I don't know, someone maybe teaching Dharma or or as a just counselor, even without hypnosis? Uh, how do you think this might uh, play you being? Yeah. I think that I feel the need to be more explicit about my identity, right? Than maybe mm -hmm. some people do, or some people feel the yeah. need to. I feel like I do need to let my identity be part of my professional face. And so that people can understand who they're, who they're working with or who, you know, potential clients can really see me for who I am and not kind of make an assessment based on my appearance or my, my, my first and my last name. My middle name is Mariko. It's Japanese, but you know, it's difficult to tell from my Julia Shannon, right? Like what my yeah. identity um, so I think that there is, an, I feel the need to be more explicit about my identity and kind of how that has shaped my understanding of structural influences on the psyche. Because ultimately for me, like, as you kind of were saying at the beginning of this conversation, I don't think it's possible to have like a totally intrapsychic approach to healing because there are so many influences that are social, economic, you know, uh, hierarchical determinants of people's sense of self, you know, their ability to be fully realized um, and to feel comfortable and to feel loving towards the world, right? And to feel loved. So I think being explicit about that is helpful, number one. And number two, I feel like, you know, uh, being in this 
biracial position, which I do agree with you is some kind of shadow. I really think it's some kind of shadow place like to sit in, like in this society, um, you know, it, it really kind of gives you a, like a heart-based awareness of how, um, how harmful like these boxes can be. And that the boxes can be on any category. They don't have to be racial. As you said, it could be about gender identity or sexuality or, or, or you know, experiencing patriarchy. You know, there's so many categories. <laughs> and so I think when you have kind of like a heart-based experience of that, um, you know, and you've worked yourself to kind of try to free yourself and to be more fluid, and to kind of learn how to navigate this world um, and to kind of retain your own self-respect and sense of self and sense of capability, that there can be a understanding with clients who are experiencing that in any aspect of their identity right and that's true you know and the converse I think you don't have to be a biracial or multiracial person to to be uh, to be working towards a more fluid way of living and a more um uh like a more free way of living like in this very rigid kind of very oppressive hierarchical world that we live in uh so I think like that feeling that there is like this very kind of important process of liberation that is about fluidity and is about um, uh, being, feeling free in an unfree world and feeling free in your own mental and spiritual space, right? Like is probably at the foundation of how I would want to work with clients. And I don't know if, if practicing hypnosis would be a path for people to um, start to begin to experience some of those freeings from boundaries. But if it is, then I would definitely be interested, you know, like in, in integrating that. Um, yeah, and like Buddhist perspectives, as you're saying, you know, like kind of bringing in, not blending it in a, in a mishmash, but just kind of bringing in insights, right, from like these different traditions mm -hmm. that can help us live in a, in a more free way, in a more blissful way, more in touch with our organic intelligence, you know, as, as we learn from like the great teachers, so. When I was, uh, hmm, I guess. 21, I changed my, my name used to be Wick, <laughs> or no, I'm sorry, Wickram, uh -huh. and then my parents had shortened it from Wickram and Saker to, to Wickram to maybe help that I could fit in better or something, mm -hmm. but it just confused myself and everyone else more, and then I found out what Wickram and Saker meant, and I was like, God damn it, it means something cool, it <laughs> means uh, the victorious one whose name is written in the sky. Wow, that's and beautiful. I was like, yeah, I was like, hey, there's something I like. And wow. uh and so as I, you know, sort of came out as a Sri Lankan person <laughs> in the closet Sri Lankan, then yeah. I uh put it back in, you know, and uh I figured out how to do it and uh, changed my name back. And but I think that this issue of non-dualism that we were talking about earlier is really important here in uh, how we're creating and maintaining ourselves, both as a therapist or a hypnotist or, I don't know, teacher of Dharma. I think, if, I remember one of these quotes, I, I remember Chagva Rinpoche talks about what enlightenment is. And he talks about it being a teacher that is fully uh, awake to who they are and 100% uh, genuine. And so these kinds of issues, I think they require like really, um, yeah, looking at our fixations on how we want to be. Yeah. 
And so if you have struggled, uh, as I know I have, I feel like it has been very helpful to me to have had these struggles in terms of helping people, even who don't have, you know, struggle with race, but maybe yeah. they struggle with, you know, internalized homophobia or something, or someone comes to me, you know, uh, yeah, having really struggled with uh, patriarchy, you know, mm -hmm. woman comes to me this way, uh, then uh, I have at least that way of understanding uh, yeah. hegemony through yeah. it yeah. stamping its boot on my face. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> and so I do think that that uh, brings more empathy and also I think does make one probably to have a more, more hypnotic style as a therapist, whether you use hypnosis or not. I feel I mean, like, you know, we're, we're more attuned to the micro expressions. That's true. And just the sense of the self, right? Like I just think biracial or multicultural people really have like a lot that is underneath the executive yeah. exterior level. And, you know, being really aware of that, like how much is under there can help you kind of understand how that's probably true for everyone, right? Like, I just think we're more, or, or there just is something about our life experience that does make you just very conscious of this deep well, the deep well that is underneath, like, right, what is being shown to the world, you know? And like how to use that in a healthy way that it's not, as you said, kind of this, site of you know like repression yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah it turns out that uh you're one of the few people in the world uh, and i know that are into hypnosis enough and also uh clearly are comfortable i hope you're continuing to be comfortable talking about this but i just re remembered that actually there's an aspect of uh hypnosis research that kind of plays into this at least in my experience and that's uh ted sarban's role-taking theory of hypnosis and so uh, I, I don't know if you've had this experience but in the multiracial biracial literature there uh, is a sort of phenomenon people talk about when you're multi and bi biracial uh, people can have what's called a flexible look you know and so I have to say that one of the things that really helped integrate my illusory self in a way that I didn't experience all this horrible social things. I used to have the worst social anxiety, <laughs> ridiculous, uh, lived in panic attack. But one of the things that did help integrate it was things like you were talking about, like signaling, you know, what your middle name is in your case. Right. In my case, it was my last name. Right. But, um, for me, one of them was growing my hair long. Mm -hmm. My grandfather, my great great grandfather, had hair longer than me, you know. Wow. And uh, he was the Supreme Court Justice in uh, Sri Lanka. Oh. Um, the other is, uh, yeah, making the name longer. And um, I, I, I even uh, sort of let go of. Uh, I used to want to speak in a particular way. So my voice has changed quite a bit since I not trying to hold this Midwestern right. corn fed boy accent. And I really let all my teachers accents in fact now I now I speak in a very strange way with the Tibetan and Bhutanese and Sri Lankan and 
you know, rural Illinois, everything are mixed in. Uh, so uh, I, I think, yeah, again, it's this construction of the self is, uh, yeah. when you're given these dichotomies, as you're saying, they're really uh, impossible to bring together in cultural terms, in terms of even social cultural oppression, uh, it does. It does seem to lend itself towards, um, I guess, potentially becoming empathic or maybe psychotic on the other side. <laughs> you can't hold enough together to develop empathy for anything. It just keeps splitting. I don't know. Actually, I had some cousins that went that way. To be honest. Right. 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 Well, I mean, yes, I think definitely like learning about, you know, the prevalence of, of schizophrenia in, in, in communities of immigrants and just like the challenges to the psyche that are occurring, right? And then kind of the building back and breaking down of, of the sense of self um, is something that's relevant. And I, I do think that what you're describing is like, yes, being kind of forced to kind of having this malleability that comes from having to signal certain things socially in service of kind of this white supremacist, you know, system. Uh, is something that is toxic. But when you start to use that in your own benefit and to see the malleability like you're describing of kind of your voice or changing your hair, changing your presentation to the world, you start to use it in the other way, you know, for yourself, right? And to kind of take the power that you have from kind of constantly having to, uh, you know, code switch or whatever, you know, present yourself or whatever situation you're in, when you start to turn that, you know, for your own benefit in your own healing and your own empowerment, that's, I think, and I, I'm experiencing the same thing as you, which I think is like a coming out process of some kind. But when you start to like leverage it for yourself, then it becomes dynamic. And then instead of becoming stifling, it's becoming freeing and it's becoming powerful, you know, and that is healing, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> So this this really goes along with uh, Ted Sarbin's uh, role-taking theory of hypnosis, which is probably the most misunderstood theory of hypnosis, because the simplest way of saying it is that people fake hypnosis, and hypnosis mm. is real. And even Ted Barber used to fuck around in a way that made it sound like he believed that. But it's just really, he's more of a trickster, I think. I don't think he really ever fully believed that. He did use the word hypnosis in quotation <laughs> at one time. He stopped, uh -huh. I think, about 1970-something. Uh -huh. um, but at any rate, this theory says something actually quite profound that I think is a very empathic phenomenon, which is, yeah, like, uh, uh, for instance, like today, I'm here in Europa, and so I got my hair down. <laughs> you know, this university yeah. founded by hippies and really love and respect Asian wisdom traditions. It's one of the best reasons to be here, uh, if at all, is really got to be that for me. I really enjoy uh, one of the few places, really, uh, where I'm not going to be uh, fired for teaching meditation <laughs> <laughs> or hypnosis. They're fine with everything. Uh, but um, so I think like in role, Sarban's role-taking theory was that people adopt to the experience of hypnosis that's been presented to them as being part of a hypnotic role. And then mm -hmm. you live it out with what he called hallucinated intensity mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so when you're sort of talking about you know this uh non-dualistic 
experience that you're forced to deal with when you are blended something that's ain't supposed to, even my parents actually couldn't get married in the, my home state. Uh -huh. I had to move, go to a neighboring state to get married because of discrimination against um, you know, multiracial marriage, uh, bi biracial marriage. Uh, so I think that um, maybe there's something about this need for having a stable role that creates this, what Sarban called hallucinated intensity so that we, you know, try to create this sort of uh, almost like gestalt phenomenon. The original word gestalt has to do with uh, this that you create an experience of a illusory whole. That's what a gestalt is. It's like uh, the first gestalts were like um, people watching slides of movies and then inferring movement. Like if you watch a bunch of slides and if they're pre presented to you fast enough, it looks like a horse is right. going across the screen. Right. But um, actually all you saw were just a whole bunch of pictures of a horse not moving. And so, the, the gestalt, that's what a gestalt is. It's a kind of illusion of a whole and a continuity from, you know, something that's more than the sum of its parts. That makes and, sense. And so, you know, I, I love this because of course, you know, that's the Buddhist take on the self too, right? right. The, the no essence of the self, you can't right. read. No body, no tongue, no appearance, no mind. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and so I was just really uh, thinking a lot about uh, this hallucinated uh, intensity that we need to feel that we are something. Like even uh, both our families uh, really arrange our names in a way that we would be more, I don't know, acceptable is the word, you know, yeah. <laughs> I hate to say. Yeah, uh, and uh, I think that that has made it um, necessary, at least for me, sometimes to form this kind of hallucinations about who I myself is to make it more tolerable. And at times, they're totally selected things that were completely, you know, I mean, they were, seemed true to me, you know, but that resulted in all this uh, free-floating anxiety yeah. <laughs> from parts of me I was not in yeah. touch with. Yeah, um, definitely. And so I'm thinking, yeah, maybe there's something about this that, you know, really this role-taking anxiety about being multiracial or biracial that could either increase one's empathy and thus uh, hypnotic experience to engage in role-taking uh, with hallucinated intensity, as Sarban used to say. Uh, and then also I've noticed it the other way. Like there are people who sometimes say to me that no one else has ever been able to hypnotize them. And <laughs> I usually don't think this way about myself at all. Like I personally, I, when I look at the research on this, it's pretty damning to anybody who claims to have the secrets of hypnosis is complete bullshit. The, the, most of the variance comes from the kind of person who has the ability. And if you are smart enough to have read the research about them, then you can help them. <laughs> you got good enough training. Then no one has no ridiculous, uh, you know, secrets of. Sometimes people invent these expectancies that people 
thing live out as a part of it. But even that could be dismissed very easily if another person came on the scene. But every once in a while, there are people that do say this to me. And so mostly what I think at that point is they're feeling gratitude because I helped them. And so I'm trying to say, no, 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 this was you. I was just your mirror. And that's how I actually think of it. Uh, I'm just a good coach. And you can say I'm a good coach and that's fine. But really the ability has always been yours. But then they'll just keep wanting to do that. Sometimes when people really do that, uh, and then I ask, well, what was it about me then? And then they will, sometimes they will say things like, uh, your ideas are just so different, you know? Uh, and so sometimes I wonder if not looking like other people actually puts me in different, like people are already having trouble categorizing me racially. <laughs> Maybe that does make him a small advantage right. where it's opening uh, people's empathy. Like, what are you? You know, uh, I, I don't, I mean, actually people will say that to me. They will say, what are you? You know? Oh, for sure. Yeah, people have definitely said that to me. I bet I think you're right. There's something, <clears throat> there's something unique about hypnotism and being a hypnotherapist where you're even to a greater degree than in regular therapy, like you're, body, demeanor, right, presentation are playing an even greater role in the expect in the creation of expectancy or the creation of a space that is different, right? A space that people can experience something different. So that is something that I think is interesting and worth discussing and worth studying um, because the, the human aspect is even more heightened in the hypnotherapeutic relationship than in, I think, maybe, <laughs> I think maybe it's even more heightened in the hypnotherapeutic relationship than in the traditional uh, talk therapy relationship. So yeah, it's something to explore for sure. But um, but yeah, and I want to thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ian, for all of your, you know, all of your generosity and the sharing with us, um, you know, your your thoughts today. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I well, hope we I, can I very much on. appreciate uh, you yeah. know, really I could go on talking forever because uh, <laughs> really you, even in your first statement, you said so many interesting things to me. And uh actually. As you can see, I went for the most personal of the things that you said. And so I really appreciate you being willing to offer uh, your experience with them because I know yeah. these were experiences that, you know, attached to some degree of suffering, at least in myself. Yeah. But also, I feel very much uplifted by them. And I, I much, very much salute you for the way you're living your life. And uh, if you wish, I hope you enjoy the bring out your middle name too. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Thank I, I know for sure uh, bringing back my long last name uh, did actually help me integrate this illusory self yeah. until I can, I don't know, get rid of it altogether. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Well, thank you. No, thank you for saying that. Um, and, you know, I hope that, yes, I'd love to, you know, continue to stay in touch and, you know, uh, maybe learn more about hypnosis Good. from you. So wonderful. I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. so wonderful. Yeah. yeah, and thank you so much, Steve, for for connecting us and allowing this uh, conversation to take place. Oh, it's my no, pleasure. Yeah, it was my pleasure, and so great to, to to hear the two of you talk and dialogue like this. Thank you both so much, Dr. Ian and Julia Shannon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.